That is one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite bands. It was written by a man named Kerry Livgren. I'm sure many of you know that of the band Kansas about 40 years or so ago. And Livgren, uh, if you look through his lyrics over the years, he was on a spiritual journey. He was investigating different religions on a search for truth and meaning and purpose. Uh, the third verse of this song, which we didn't play, there's a long violin solo, which is beautiful. But the third verse says, now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. This summer, we are working our way to the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes asks a lot of kind of big picture, kind of philosophical life type questions. And we begin with the first 11 verses, which is a sort of ancient version of Dust in the Wind. Follow along with me as I read. The words of the teacher, son of David, <laughs> king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has seen, has never enough of seeing, or the ear is filled of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. At some point, every person must face the question or some version of this in life. How do we make sense of life, which is so beautiful and amazing and inspiring and incredible, and yet which is also so frustrating and fragile and fleeting and seemingly futile at the same time? I mean, life is amazing, right? The world is full of beauty and joy. Uh, we see incredible sunsets and sunrises. We see jaw-dropping landscapes when we travel. Um, we, we have in, incredible arts, works of art which, which move us, uh, make us think. We have songs like the song we just heard that make, us, that make us, that touch us deep in our soul. We have incredible relationships and memories. Life is really incredible, isn't it? And the life we live today is, is really amazing when you think about it. John Rockefeller, who was often said to be the richest man who ever lived over 100 years ago, in many ways, our quality of life is higher than his. You know, I'm not talking about disposable income or the ability to do whatever we want. I'm talking about the fact that we have better health care. We have better transportation. We have better technology, uh, air conditioning, furnaces, indoor plumbing and lighting, better creature comforts. We, in many ways, live better than the richest man who lived just a hundred years ago. Our lives are incredible. But our lives can also be frustrating and, and seemingly futile. I've heard this question or statement a number of different ways over the years as a pastor. When somebody will come to me confidentially and say something like, you know, I've got the job, 
I've got the house. I've got the car. I've got the relationships. But I'm still not happy. Something's missing. We resonate with Bono when he sang in the U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. A 2016 article in the highly regarded science magazine New Scientist asked several basic philosophical questions about life and all that and attempted to give answers from a strictly scientific point of view. And one of the questions was, what is the meaning of life? And in trying to answer uh, this question about the meaning of life, the author begins with a bleak reality. The harsh answer is, it has none. Your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. When it ends, a few people will remember you for a while, but they will die too. And even if you make the history books, your contribution will soon be forgotten. Humans will go extinct. Earth and the sun will be destroyed. Eventually, the universe itself will end. Against this appalling reality, how can a human life have any real meaning? Remember, this is from a strictly scientific response point of view. So how do we make sense of life when it's so beautiful and incredible, but also so frustrating and fleeting and futile, seemingly? The book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us answer this question and some other questions as well. And Ecclesiastes is one of the what is known as the wisdom books of the Bible. Um, and, and define wisdom as in, in scriptures. Wisdom is a, a gift that God will give to anybody who's humble enough to receive it. So it's not just only tied into intellect or ability. Wisdom is a gift God gives to anybody who is humble enough to receive it. And wisdom is about this, this skill and the insight to live well and rightly in a broken world. That's why we're calling this sermon series uh, Living Well. And so some of the wisdom books, you have Job, which is about suffering and about the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? That sort of thing. Where is God in the midst of all that? You have Proverbs, which is about living wisely in the, in the daily details of life, like how do you handle your money? How do you treat people? Uh, how, do you, um, you know, how, do, how do you resolve things and forgive people? Things like that. And, and, and we have the book of the Song of Solomon, which is about love and romance. And then you have Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most unusual, sort of misunderstood, sometimes controversial books in the Bible. And here's the thing you're going to love about Ecclesiastes. It's not afraid to ask hard questions about life. It's honest about what Philip Ryken calls the drudgery of work, the injustice of government, dissatisfaction of foolish pleasure, and the mind-numbing tedium of everyday life, the treadmill of our existence. And most people attribute Ecclesiastes to Solomon. Now, Solomon... He, although he lived a, thousand, a couple thousand years ago, more than a couple thousand years ago, from what we know of him, was pretty uniquely qualified to, to address the big picture questions and issues of life. Uh, I mean, when Solomon became king after his father David died, God asked Solomon, ask me for anything, one thing, and I'll give it to you. It'll be yours. And Solomon, what does he ask for? He asked for wisdom. He asked for discernment. How can I, I? I need to have the ability to lead my people well. And so God grants his request, and he's known far and wide as the wisest man in the world. And Solomon had seen it all, done it all. He became wealthy beyond belief. He um, was powerful. He could have any woman that he wanted, and so he did. The nation of Israel flourished while he was king. He experienced the very best 
of life and his accomplishments were the stuff of legends. And most believe that Ecclesiastes was written toward the end of his life while he was looking back on what he had done and experienced. And you think often when somebody does that, especially if they're really accomplished, well-known, famous, they'll kind of use that as a sort of tribute to themselves. You know, I've done this. I've been here, done that. They tell stories, uh, name drop. I've learned this. Let me pass on my wisdom and life lessons to you sort of, you know, book or letter. But it isn't really that way. Ecclesiastes begins with some hard realities about life that we must understand and not avoid if we want to live wisely in this world. Here's the first. Life is temporary and fleeting. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, we better get used to this message as you read through the book, because this this phrase, meaningless, the futility of of life, it's used 38 other times. Uh, One translator puts it this way, merest breath, merest breath, all is mere breath. This idea of of life like a a puff of smoke, a wisp of smoke, you reach out to grab it and you can't hold it. Or like the bubbles, you reach out to grab it, it pops and it's gone. It's it's, it's a mirage. That's what life is like. The Bible says that we are like a breath, that our days are like passing shadows. The prophet Isaiah wrote this, all flesh is grass, grass. And all this beauty is like the flower of the field and the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Sure that people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades. Another way to think about it is life is like is in life. It's like we're building sandcastles. You know, you you come to the beach and you you have a design in your mind and it's it's beautiful and it's intricate and complicated and you you form it and and and, and put the finishing touches on and people walk by and they ooh and they awe and like wow I can't believe you did this they're impressed by you what you've done what you've accomplished and then the tide comes in and it's erased it's all gone you don't even you don't even you can't even tell that it was ever there. On our vacation a couple of years ago we explored the Boston area and on one day we walked the Freedom Trail which takes you right by a cemetery from pre-revolutionary days. It's a beautiful, sacred place. But of the hundreds of people buried there, only a few, only a few are remembered today. Most are completely forgotten. So what's the point of all the effort that we put into life? We're going to get there. But next, Solomon writes this. Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. So here's the next harsh reality. Life is repetitive. History repeats itself. It's like going around and around in circles, just like nature. A generation comes and is born. It dies off. Another generation pops up in its place. Nothing really changes. I mean, sure, there's some progress. There's some advancements. But, but we're just guests passing through who will be checking out soon. Replaced by a new set of guests who will take our place and forget that we were ever there. In the meantime, Solomon writes, the world keeps going on and on like it always has. The sun rises, it sets, and it never goes back to a different place. always returns to the same place. 
The wind continues to blow the same currents over and over and blows here and there. But it always goes around and around and never really ends up anywhere. And he says the waters flow endlessly. Now, we lived in Canada for a while, and, but uh, I, I, there was a time when I went to Niagara Falls. And you'll see water draining from Lake Erie to Lake Ontario. Massive amount, massive volume of water. And it's not like Lake Erie ever becomes empty or Lake Ontario ever gets full. That's because they flow into the St. Lawrence and the St. Lawrence flows to the Atlantic, but the Atlantic never fills up either. And it's a good picture for our lives. One and a half million gallons of water going over the falls every second. All that energy, all that emotion, all that, all that motion and, and activity, but nothing really changes. That's not all. If you're not depressed yet, there's more. Solomon gives us another reason why we gain nothing from toil. He says there's nothing new under the sun. He says, in case you think that the answer to the brevity of life and the purpose and meaning of life is, is to make a, a lasting mark, to leave a legacy before you go, well, listen to what he says in verses 8 and 9. All things are wearisome more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing or the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, of course, there are new things, right? New advancements in technology or medicine or engineering or agriculture or whatever. Um, But new iPhones become landfill in just a few short years. Uh, there's, there's new things, right? Things like private space exploration. How cool is that? But no matter how much changes, we can't escape this treadmill. We can't change the fundamental reality of life. No matter what changes, we still have the same basic problems and insecurities. We still have sickness and disease and pain and hatred and jealousy and envy and murder and adultery and anger and bitterness and conflict and wars and racism and death. These things never seem to change. And every generation deals with them. And no matter how hard or how much we work, those things will always be a part of life because we are sinful, fallen, flawed people living in a sinful, fallen, flawed world. And our lives are too brief and we're fooling ourselves if we think otherwise. So Solomon says, life is going to go on without us and we will be completely forgotten. So what's the point of all of this? As we work our way through Ecclesiastes, there'll be other things we'll get to. And as Leslie said, at the end of the book, it's going to kind of solve it for us. It's just a point. But what are these first few verses doing? Well, Ecclesiastes teaches us here to face the reality of our lives. Because all this is true whether we believe in God or not. Life is temporary, fleeting, repetitive, will all be forgotten. There's nothing new under the sun. So what is the point of this? Well, this part of Ecclesiastes, it, it points us to something. It, it, it points us to the offer of, 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 gift, of, of life as, as a gift. It, it tells us that life is not about, not about gaining accomplishments or resources or experiences. Life is, is to be treated as a gift. Because no matter what you accomplish, no matter how much you work, no matter how much you pour into relationship, it, in the end, it's not going to be enough. 
In Ecclesiastes, he, Solomon saves us the trouble of building our lives on things which will not and cannot satisfy and on expecting too much from something or someone that isn't going to last. And so Solomon, he, he's, he's creating a hunger for something bigger and, and better. C.S. Lewis, in a famous quote, uh, this is kind of a paraphrase, basically says, if you have a desire or a longing that can't be satisfied by things in this world, then perhaps that longing can, will be satisfied in the next. Perhaps you're created for another world. You know, so Solomon here, he's, he's showing us the futility of doing what everybody else has been doing for centuries because he knows, he knows it's a dead end. And these verses are like a giant road-closed sign. All the things we look to will not bring us the happiness, the meaning, the significance that we're looking for. In his book, Hoping for Happiness, Barnabas Piper talks about those, those plastic hooks, you know, with an adhesive on the back. You, you pull them off and you stick them to the wall because you don't want to drill a hole in the wall. He talks about how he's so excited when he's living by himself because he discovered these things. And he would hang pictures and dust mops and calendars and backpacks and all sorts of things. But then, inevitably, maybe an hour down the road or, or a day or a week or eventually, he'd hear a crash. And he'd find that whatever he'd hung had crashed on the floor. The hook hadn't been strong enough to hold the weight. But for some reason, he, he would try again. He wrote, We hang happiness on hooks in the same way that I hung pictures, thinking that our job or our kids or our vacation can bear the weight of our expectations. The problem, though, is that our expectations for happiness are too heavy for the hooks we use. Those little plastic ones are designed for light or temporary weights, but we weigh them down with expectations for deep and lasting happiness. He writes, I was slow to learn my lesson, but eventually I figured out what kinds of hooks I needed for heavier pictures. We are much slower to learn what kinds of hooks we can hang heavy expectations on. And we keep being shocked when they crash into pieces on the floor. Then we grab the same kind of hook, maybe in a different color, different size, and try again with predictably disappointing results. We try moving the hooks to a different location, same results. And we just keep on going, rarely if ever, considering whether our hooks are strong enough to support the happiness we expect. What are some of the hooks that we try as human beings to hang the weight of our happiness on? Work, that's a big one. Accomplishments. Love and marriage and relationships. Friendship, church, self. Physical appearance or condition. All, all good things, all designed by God, all gifts from God, they all have their place. But they all are too weak, too weak to ultimately hold our hopes for happiness and significance and meaning and purpose. None of them will ultimately satisfy. And when we keep placing weighty expectations on them, we should not be shocked when eventually they collapse and fall. They let us down. Piper concludes, the real crux of our problem is that we expect temporal things to deliver lasting happiness. Another way of putting it is Stephen Covey, the author, says that many people are climbing the ladders of success, but when they get to the top, they will find that the ladders are leaning against the wrong walls. So where should we hang our hopes for happiness, meaning, and purpose? Well, Solomon wrote what? That there's nothing new under the sun, but... What if there is something new and different and possible above the sun? 
What if this world isn't all that there is? What if God himself entered this broken world and broke the curse of sin and death? What if God himself adopted us as his children and promised us that we would never be forgotten and that our lives would go on past death? What if God promised to undo all the wrong that's in this world and renew and restore it the way it's meant to be? What if there is something above the sun? G. Campbell Morgan wrote, Solomon had been living through all these experiences under the sun, concerned with nothing above the sun, until there came a moment in which he had seen the whole of life, and there was something over the sun. And it is only as we take account of that which is over the sun, as well as that which is under the sun, that things under the sun are seen in their true light. In other words, life only makes sense with God. I mean, apart from God, life is futile. Life is empty. Life is meaningless. But with God, life is a gift. It has purpose. It has significance. And we are created by God, for God, and for relationship with God. And only in and through a relationship with Jesus Christ will life make sense. Carrie Livgren, who wrote the song we started with, Dust in the Wind, Eventually, he had a conversation with an opening act, uh, one, of the, one of the musicians in the opening act, all the, these long bus rides, and they talked about Christianity. And eventually, Livgren came to the point where he, he believed that Christianity was true, that Christ was the Son of God and died for his sins and rose from the dead. And he, he put his faith in Christ, and his life began to change radically. And he still lives in Topeka, Kansas, and he's involved in a great church. He's a Sunday school teacher there. And he discovered that Life only makes sense with God. Jesus said this about the topic. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where the thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, don't hang your happiness. Don't hang your meaning and purpose and significance on anything other than Jesus Christ and his kingdom, his priorities, his values, his purposes. Hang your happiness on the right hooks, on God's promises, on God's truth, on God's grace and mercy. Now, we're going to stop there for this morning. But I encourage you to come back in future weeks as we continue to work our way through this incredible book that I believe is timeless and relevant as we look at some of these big questions in life and how we can grapple with them and get God's perspective. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of life. Father, we confess that so often that we hang... um, our hopes, our dreams, our, our search for meaning and purpose, we hang them on the wrong things. Lord, um, so help us, Father, to have your perspective. Help us to reorder our priorities so that, that ultimately the things that we, the thing that we hang our lives upon, the only thing that is trustworthy and a firm foundation uh, that we would hang ourselves, or hang our truth, our, we would hang our, our lives, Lord Jesus, upon you, upon your kingdom and your priorities and values. We thank you for the gift of life, and we thank you that, 
that it is not meaningless, that it is not futile, Lord, but ultimately it is a gift that points us to the next life, the next world to come, where all our all our yearnings and desires that are from you, our, our search for meaning and purpose will be completely and fully satisfied. So Lord, we turn to you, we offer ourselves to you, in Jesus' name, amen.